Amen. Well, I want to welcome you here this morning and uh, ta- invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to continue in our series in Philippians 2. And this morning, uh, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 11, and then we will focus our attention on verses 6 through 8. So Philippians chapter 2, and I'll read for us verses 1 through 11. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide uh, for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 980 and 981. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we gather together uh, this morning to be reminded of the incarnation of Your Son and to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus, we thank You, Lord, for this passage that Paul penned some 2,000 years ago that speaks of the humility of Jesus and of His incarnation, of His birth, of His death, and of His exaltation. Father, we pray that as we turn to Your Word now, that You would help us to see the Lord Jesus for who He is and to truly adore Him and then to be changed and transformed to be like Him. So take Your Word now, Lord, and we pray that You would apply it to our hearts. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. Well, if we were to think about history or literature or even modern movies, most of us could probably come up with some examples of men claiming to be God. For example, Julius Caesar and the Roman emperors who followed him claimed to be divine. We could also think of examples of supposed gods who temporarily inhabited the body of a man or a woman. We see these examples, for uh, instance, in ancient Greek mythology like the Iliad or the Odyssey. But the biblical claim that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and was born a man is distinct from these false claims and myths in a number of different ways. One of the most striking is that the God of the Bible 
not only becomes a man, but in becoming a man, he voluntarily plummets himself into the depths of human agony and suffering. And he does so in order to redeem sinful humanity from eternal destruction. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about the person of Jesus? Well, for one, it teaches us that Jesus is humble. We've sung of this humility this morning. We've read about it in the Scriptures. And the title of our message this morning is The Humility of Jesus. We're currently in a sermon series, a Christmas sermon series entitled, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. And we've been focusing on Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The first week we considered the divinity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God. The second week we looked at the humanity of Jesus, the idea that Jesus is man. And putting those two truths together, we see that Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man. This morning we will consider the humility of Jesus. I know that we have many friends and family from out of town this week, but if you're able to come back next week, I hope you'll come back as I conclude our series with the worship of Jesus. This morning, though, I want us to focus our attention on verses 6 through 8, and I want us to consider the humility of Jesus, and in so doing, adore the Lord Jesus for His humility. And then I want us to make one application So first of all, we'll consider the humility of Jesus, and we we see the humility of Jesus in our text expressed in two actions. So if if you're taking notes, this is our outline. We see the humility of Jesus expressed in two actions. The first action is this, he did not grasp. And the second action, which we'll consider in a few moments, is he emptied himself. And then we'll make one application. So first, he did not grasp. Look there in verse 6. Paul records in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, if we look at this verse carefully, uh, we see here that Paul writes, who though he was in the form of God, did not, and we could translate that word, think. He did not consider. He did not regard. He did not count is the way the ESV, which I'm reading from, translates that word there. He did not count equality with God to be, and the word that is used there in the original language is harpagmos. It's actually the only time that this word is used in the Greek New Testament. And it can be translated to seize, to grasp, to take by force, to plunder. And so the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, and as well the New American Standard Version, translates this word here, a thing to be grasped. Another popular English translation, the New International Version, translates chapter 2, verse 6, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So it could be translated either way, to be grasped, to be seized, or to be used for his own advantage. Either way, the point seems clear. Jesus was not concerning himself, we should make this clear, Jesus is not concerning himself with aspiring to be God. He's not concerning himself with attaining the status of being God, in part because he is already God, right? That's what Paul has told us in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. 
So Jesus is already God. He's not seeking to attain to be God. Rather, what Paul is highlighting here is that as God, Jesus did not insist on, he did not cling to his divine prerogatives and privileges. He did not exploit his divine status for his own advantage without reference or concern for humanity. Dr. Stephen Wellam, in a book he wrote entitled, God the Incarnate Son, he makes this observation, quote, In other words, the grasping or advantage-taking does not move toward equality with God as its goal, but begins with God equality and moves towards others. So Jesus isn't grasping after trying to be God. He's already God, and He's moving towards others. He goes on to say, the text then emphasizes the selfless attitude of the pre-incarnational Christ. He regarded his equality with God not as excusing him from, but as uniquely qualifying him for the task of redemptive suffering and death as a man, end of quote. In my study of this passage, I've been struck by that idea and have come back to it in my own mind again and again. Wellam writes, quote, he regarded his equality with God not as excusing him from, but as uniquely qualifying him for the task of redemptive suffering and death as a man. And this is so unlike us, right? This is so unlike our own sinful hearts. We so often see those in positions of power and influence using their power and authority for their own selfish gain. Aren't we inclined to do that? If we have some position of authority or power or some advantage over another person, the temptation is to use that for ourselves. Whether it's a political figure who entertains a bribe or engages in corrupt business deals to enrich themselves. Whether it's a business leader who embezzles money or takes advantage of insider information to unfairly position themselves to make a profit. Whether it's an employer or a boss who might personally threaten or sexually harass an employee to get what they want. Whether it's a religious leader who knowingly deceives their listeners to increase their following or misuses money that comes into the ministry for their own personal wealth. Whether it's technology or social media companies who unethically gather data or deceitfully seek to influence public opinion. Our sinful hearts are wired to grasp, to take advantage of whatever positions of power and authority we have to exploit them for our own good. And listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with power or authority or leadership or advantages. Some think that the idea, the solution to this problem, which we see that runs throughout all of humanity, that the solution to this problem is to reject all authority. To reject any idea of submitting to authority. To assume that any personal advantages or privileges are inherently sinful. But of course, that is not the solution. Rather, we see here in our text that Jesus himself was in the form of God. Speak about power, speak about authority, speak about advantage. But here's the key. Jesus used his power. He used his authority. 
He used his advantage for the good of others and for the glory of God. The solution is to follow the Lord Jesus and to use whatever power or authority or leadership or ministry opportunities that the Lord gives us for the good of others and for the glory of God. It's to model our lives after the humility of the Lord Jesus who did not grasp, who did not take advantage, but used his divine status for the good of others. Listen to how one commentator frames this. He's imagining how the original readers in Philippi, this letter was written to a church in Philippi, how the original readers would have read Paul's words here. And he writes, quote, The greatest rulers, heroes, and gods of the citizens of Philippi were famous for exploiting their positions of power. When did the emperors Caligula and Nero, the great conqueror Alexander the Great, or the gods Apollos and Zeus ever not regard their positions as advantages to exploit? But the one existing in the form of God said no to selfish exploitation of his position in the form of God and said yes to the form of a servant, end of quote. And listen, my friends, here's what Paul wants us to know. Paul is asking us the question, you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what Jesus is like? This is it. This is an essential expression of who God is. This is an essential expression of what he's like. This is how he acts. He does not seize. He does not grasp. He does not exploit his own divine prerogatives and privileges for his own advantage without reference to humanity, but rather he uses his power, his authority, his advantages as God for the good of his own people. The first thing we see here regarding the humility of the Lord Jesus is that he did not grasp. Second, though, we see that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Look there in verse 7. I'll begin reading for us in verse 6. He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then verse 7, But emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, some have concluded that when Jesus emptied himself, he emptied himself of his divinity. He emptied himself of his godness, and he replaced it with humanity. But this is clearly a wrong reading of the text. In fact, Paul defines what he means by emptying in the next two phrases. Look there in the text and you see it in verse 7. He emptied himself. And what does that mean? He emptied himself, here Paul defines it, by one, taking the form of a servant, and by two, being born in the likeness of men. So paradoxically, what we see here is that the emptying, emptying takes place not by subtraction, but by addition. His emptying did not involve a subtraction of his divinity, but rather an addition of humanity. Listen again to what Dr. Stephen Wellam says in his book, God the Incarnate Son. He writes, quote, The text says nothing about Christ emptying his divine attributes. Rather, he empties himself by adding to himself a complete human nature, and a willingness to undergo the agony of death for our sake and for our 
salvation, end of quote. You see, it's not that God ceases to be God and becomes man. It's that God the Son becomes man. He becomes the God-man. He does not relinquish His divinity, but rather as God, He assumes humanity. And notice what Paul, how Paul describes here, how far he is willing to go in order to meet us in our need and to secure our salvation. To demonstrate Jesus' humility, Paul here rehearses Jesus' descent down, 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 down. Do you see it there in the text? He goes down and is born in the likeness of men. As the Apostle John says in John chapter 1, the eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the divine assumes the limitations and the frailty of humanity. But that's not all. He goes down further. As he becomes a man, he doesn't just become any man. He doesn't become a great king or a powerful Caesar or a president or a pampered and adored celebrity, but rather you see there in the text that he becomes a man and comes in the form of a servant. The word there is doulos. It can be translated also slave. A few years back, Prince William and his wife Catherine released Christmas photos of their baby Prince George. And it was cute. Prince George was sitting on the steps of this magnificent palace. But when Jesus was born, we know there were no royal pictures released. Rather, he was born in obscurity. He was born into poverty. We also know that Jesus, when he grew up to be a man, we know that there was nowhere for him to lay his head. That's what we read in the Gospels, that oftentimes he was dependent upon others for a place to stay, for food to eat. I recently read an article about Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, who recently purchased two more homes. The homes are located in Florida in an area known as Billionaire Bunker. He purchased one in August that cost $68 million dollars. The other one he purchased in October, it's located right next door, and it costs $79 million. Some speculate that Bezos will raise both of the homes, tear them down, and build something else in their place. But when Jesus came to earth, the eternal Son of God, he was not buying million-dollar mansions. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was a doulos. He was a slave. He was a servant so that he might identify with us fully in our humanity. But this is not all. He went down further still. Do you see it there in the text? He comes in the likeness of man. He comes in the form of a servant. And then he becomes obedient to the point of death. And here's the mystery, right? We read it from Augustine this morning in our reading. The infinite becomes finite. The eternal gives way to death. And why death? Because death is our greatest enemy. Death is the ultimate finality that we experience as humans. As the scriptures teach us, the wages of sin is death. Death is the price that we pay for our sin. 
And sin always collects. As a result of our sin, we will all face death, physical death in this life, and eternal death in the life to come, separated from the presence of God forever. And so Jesus came to die for us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins in his death so that through faith in him we might be delivered from death and have eternal life. Jesus died the death we deserve so that we might receive the life that he deserves. But listen, my friends, this is not all. Jesus went further down. Do you see it in the text? He came in the likeness of man. He came in the form of a servant. He humbled himself even to the point of death. But even death on a cross. Death on a cross was absolutely horrific. It was reserved for the worst of criminals and the lowest of society. It was in fact forbidden that Roman citizens could die by crucifixion. Cicero, the Roman statesman, once declared, quote, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed, end of quote. And yet we see here that Jesus, the divine servant, was not even afforded the protections of a common Roman citizen. Jesus went down, 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 down. And you see that the contrast here between verse 6 and verse 9 could not be more extreme. He was in the form of God. Even death. Death on a cross. God became man, and not only did He become man, but we see here in our text that He descended even to the depths of human depravity and misery and death for our sake. And it is in this way that Jesus emptied Himself. He emptied himself by taking upon himself humanity, by coming in the form of a servant, by subjecting himself to death, and by dying the worst of deaths, death on a Roman cross. And here's here's an amazing thing as we think about this, that in so doing, Jesus both concealed and he revealed who God is at the same time. At the same time, in a mysterious way, he hid himself as the divine one, God, and he revealed the true nature of who God is. Listen to how one theologian puts this in terms of Jesus concealing the divine nature. He says, quote, In becoming incarnate God, not only, accommodates, not only does he accommodate himself to human weakness, he buries his glory under veil after veil so that it is impossible for flesh and blood to recognize him. And he hangs on the cross, bleeding, battered, powerless, and forsaken. The last thing he looks like is God. Indeed, he scarcely looks human. End of quote. 
at the cross, we see the hiddenness of the divine nature. It's veiled in layer after layer of humanity, servanthood, slavery, death, suffering. You wouldn't even think he's human. And yet, for those who have eyes to see, he is God. Because this is what God is like. God is the one who does not exploit. God is the one who does not greedily grasp. God is the one who does not selfishly take, but rather empties himself, pours himself out, gives himself away in love for his own. This is the humility of Jesus. And my friends, we should, we should all adore him. Now, one application, one application. We see the humility of Jesus expressed in our text and that he did not grasp and he emptied himself. But here's the application. It's the application that Paul gives us in our passage. It's found there in verse 5. Look there in the text. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So there's the application. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now let's just take a few moments and look at this. To consider this application, let's consider just for a moment here the larger context. So notice, go back to chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27, and we read these words. Only let your manner, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He says to the church, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So in this one verse we see that Paul says that a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a church, speaking of a church corporately, right? A life that we would live together as a church corporately that's worthy of the glory of Christ is a life in which we stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see the emphasis here on unity. One spirit, one mind striving side by side. And then this theme continues as we come into chapter 2. So in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, which we're reading and looking at in this series, look there in verse 2. Paul writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So you see this theme continuing into chapter 2. And how do we accomplish this? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, there's our word again, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then Paul gives us the perfect example of this type of love and humility. He presents us, puts before us the perfect example of this love and humility, namely the Lord Jesus, which leads to verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And then Paul goes on to explain in verses 6 through 8, which is what we've been looking at, he goes on to explain in those verses the mind of Christ, the humility of Jesus. So notice this, when Paul says in verse 27 of chapter 1, 
stand firm in one spirit with one mind. And then he comes down into chapter 2, verse 2, and he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and having one mind. Paul here is not advocating mindless conformity. This is not a prohibition against diversity of thought or ideas. He's not suggesting that all the believers in Philippi should have the same opinion about everything. That we should all like the same colors and root for the same sports teams and enjoy the same styles of music. When he says, it's obvious, right? When he says, have one mind, have the same mind, have one mind, he's repeating this over and over again. He's speaking, we see in chapter 2, verse 5, of the mind of Christ. That's what he's saying. I want all of you to have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ that is humble. The mind of Christ that considers others better than yourself. The mind of Christ that puts others' interest above your own. I want you to have that mind. I want you to possess a common mind. The mind of Christ. That does not selfishly grasp for what is yours. But willingly empties yourself for the sake of others. And let me just make a clarification here as well. This call to humility is by no means a call to self-hatred. Some people, Christians and non-Christians, wrongly assume this. That humility is kind of a constant putting uh, uh, putting yourself down or beating yourself up. Some some folks uh, assume that the essence of humility is constantly belittling themselves. Oh, I'm dumb, I'm ugly, I don't have anything to offer, so forth. It's not what Paul is speaking about here. It's actually quite sad when people do that. Yes, as Christians, we are to acknowledge that we are sinners, and when we sin, we should confess our sin. And at the same time, as Christians, we should have a deep sense of God's love for us in Christ and who we are in Christ. If we just do a quick survey of this short letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, we see how Paul speaks of the believers in Philippi. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, church, I want you to know that if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus and His Spirit dwells within you, He's doing a good work in you. And He's going to continue that work until Christ returns. Or in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's doing this work in you, and actually He's doing it At his great joy and delight, he does it for his good pleasure. Or Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We are citizens of heaven, and the Lord Jesus himself will come from heaven. And these bodies that are decaying and giving away and will finally die, we will be given new resurrected bodies that will live forever. Or Paul says of himself in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying that I will face adverse times, I will face joyful times, I will face hard times, I will face easy and good times, but in all times the Lord Jesus will work in and through me and help me and strengthen me so that I honor God. 
Or Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, God is your Father, and he will meet all of your needs, your physical needs. He will meet you where you are and provide what you need. This is not self-hatred. This is not self-loathing. This is not a defeatist mentality. As Christians, we should have a deep sense of God's love for us in Christ and who we are in Jesus. And at the same time, we should be humble. Notice one commentator puts it this way. He says, quote, When Paul uses this word in his encouragement to value others above ourselves, he's not counseling his readers to beat themselves up or put themselves down. Instead, he's urging them to build up and lift up others. The focus is not negative, but positive. Let the needs and interests of others surpass yours. Put them in first place. Give them the place of honor. Respect them. Listen to them. Speak about them. Serve them. Strengthen them. Encourage them. Putting others instead of ourselves in the center of our concern will cause a Copernican revolution in the community. End of quote. You know what a Copernican revolution is? The Copernican revolution prior to the 16th century, everyone assumed that the earth was the center of the universe and all the other planets and everything else revolved around the earth. Copernicus discovered that the sun was the center of the universe and the earth revolved around the sun. What this author is saying here is that Philippians chapter 2 is like a moral and spiritual Copernican revolution where we come to realize that we are not the center of our universe but God in Christ is the center of the universe and as we worship him and as we follow him we realize that the purpose of our existence is not simply to serve ourselves but to serve others and to glorify God by loving and serving others. Now, imagine if all the members of a church possessed that mindset, that attitude. They had one mind, one attitude, one disposition, the mind of the Lord Jesus to glorify God by loving and serving one another. Imagine if that were the case. Not because they all think the same and act the same and like the same things and look the same ways, but because they're all committed to this one mindset, this one disposition. They're all committed to possessing the humility of Christ. When that happens, something even greater than a Copernican revolution will occur. The reality of Christmas will be lived out in God's people. And others will witness and experience it. They will witness and experience the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God in us and through us. My friends, it's as we see the Lord Jesus in His humility and as we adore Him and worship Him for His humility that He was willing to give Himself, empty Himself, that he was not grasping to take what was his, but he was willing to give himself for us. As we see that and worship him and adore him for that, we are transformed ourselves. And by the grace of God, we become increasingly humble and increasingly eager to love and serve one another. And in so doing, we become a people 
who reflect the glory of God by being one, by loving each other, and we bring glory to God himself. Let's pray and ask that God would give us grace to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, and we thank you for this time of year that we're able to set aside so that we can remember the incarnation of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and the willingness on his behalf to empty himself for our sake, to become a man, to take the form of a servant, to die the death on a cross so that we might be forgiven and redeemed and saved and have life in you. Father, we thank you that through this act of ultimate humility that we can experience salvation and redemption. I pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus, I pray that by your grace they would do so even now. They would come to look to him in faith and adore and worship him for his mercy and grace. And Lord, as we trust in Christ, we pray that we would be conformed more and more into his image. Help us, Lord, to love and serve each other this way. We know that it's often hard and painful and difficult. We know that we often fail one another. But Lord, we thank you that through Christ's grace, we can be forgiven and continue to grow and to become more like him. So Father, do this work among us, we ask. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we ask it. Amen.